Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 64 and God's saving era. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true and that in the midst of difficult times, in the midst of difficult situations, Lord, you are there. You are always present. You are always knowing, and you always care for your own. And so, Lord, as we look at even at this text today, we're going to be reminded of of those three critical truths that you always know, that you always care, and that you're always there. And so we thank you, Lord, uh, for this psalm. We thank you that we can be reminded, we can be instructed, we can be encouraged, we can even be corrected. Uh, This is the word of the Lord that... Uh, does that, that corrects us, that rebukes us, that comforts us, that encourages us. And so we thank you, Lord, that your word is true. And we pray now as we consider this great psalm that you would take this word that we hear and that you would plant it on the good soil of our hearts, uh, especially for those who do not yet know you and those who are struggling. Lord, we pray that you would use this time together in the word to open eyes and ears to the glory of Christ, uh, resulting in the salvation of many. And also, Lord, we pray for those who are struggling and hurting that you might use this time of study in your word to help, to encourage, to comfort, uh, and uh, in whatever many ways that your spirit uses the word as it's faithfully taught. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and open it to Psalm 64, Psalm 64. And hear what the word of the Lord has to say to us today. Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers, who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless. Uh, Shooting at him suddenly and without fear, they hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, who can see them? They search out injustice, saying, we have accomplished a diligent search for the inward mind and heart of a man are deep. But God shoots his arrow at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. And then all mankind fears They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exalt. And this is the reading of God's holy, precious word. At the end of his life, David was preparing to pass his kingship to his son Solomon, along with the dream, his dream of building a house for the Lord on Mount Zion. God denied David uh, the privilege of building the temple because of the amount of blood he had spilled during his many battles and wars, 1 Chronicles 22.8 tells us. And so it would be Solomon, a man of peace, who would build the temple. For God promised in 1 Chronicles 22.9, I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. 
And so in our study of David's Psalms, we can see what the Lord meant in describing him as a man of war. After his prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, every Psalm of David has made note of his ferocious enemies. And Psalm 64 continues this trend today with David denouncing his wicked, evil, and conniving oppressors. In fact, so terrible are David's foes that only God can save him. And Psalm 64 reminds us that when God alone is our refuge, the believer may appeal to him in prayer and find safety. Alexander McLaren comments, however high and closely engirdling may be the walls that men or sorrows build around us, there is always an opening in the dungeon roof through which heaven is visible and prayers can mount. Now, part of the value of studying David's descriptions of his enemies is that we are helped to understand the kind of opposition that we ourselves as Christians are going to face in the world. Scripture tells us that believers will suffer trials of all kinds. Jesus says this in John 16:33, In the world you will face tribulations. And David's example proves this. And yet despite his many flaws, David was a man of humble faith and heart, a man after God's own heart, 1 Samuel 13, 14 tells us. And if such a man was so grievously slandered by men, how can we who fall so short of his attainment expect anything less? In fact, when we consider the great example of none other than Jesus Christ, we may surmise that the more godly we become, the more opposition we may expect. David chronicles this lamentable plight in our psalm today in Psalm 64. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner breaks down David's description of his enemies in four categories that we're going to consider today. The enemy's plans, weapons, methods, and thoughts. So first, David speaks of his foes, plans a secret plot in verse 2, and an evil purpose in, in verse 5. David, has, David was faced not merely with uh, impulsive passion, but with a cold calculation that meant to do him harm. If Psalm 64 is linked with Psalm 63, which given their similar endings is likely, then David probably refers to the conspiracy of Absalom to his son to usurp his throne. This revolt was a secret plot that stretched back over several years. You see, when Absalom returned to Jerusalem from exile for murdering his brother Amnon, he immediately sought ways to steal the hearts of the men of Israel, 2 Samuel 15, 6 tells us. And when his plot was ripe, Absalom arranged secret signals throughout the nation, alerting his conspirators to strike. And chief among his fellow plotters was David's counselor, Aphilophel. And this betrayal prompted David's bitter lament in Psalm 55, which would later be taken by Jesus in grieving the betrayal of his disciple, Judas Istriocrat, in Psalm 55:13 and Psalm 55:20, which says, It is you, my companion, my familiar friend, my companion stretched out his hand against his friend. He violated his covenant. And so few wounds hurt so badly. It was when people close to us, partners, friends, even family members, have plotted carefully and maliciously to destroy us. David's experience shows us that we live in a world where such animosities are common and may easily happen to us. Second, when David considers the enemy's weapons, the deadliest of which were not swords or spears, but words, they wet their tongue like swords. They aim better words like sorrows, verse uh, Psalm 64, 3 tells us. 
Absalom combined sweet words to win men's approval with slander and innuendo against his father. Many upright men people today similarly discover that their motives have been impugned and their actions deliberately misrepresented. According to Charles Spurgeon, slander has ever been the master weapon of the good man's enemies, and great is the care of the malicious to use it effectively. In fact, we can say more than this, that character assassination has been elevated to an art form in our nation's politics with many promising careers succumbing to unnamed sources that mock and accuse. In fact, something similar occurs in many homes, where a war of words between husband and wife or parent and child piles up the casualties of wounded hearts. No wonder the Apostle James spoke so forcefully about the damage caused by the wicked or simply unguarded speech when he says this in James 3, 5-8. The tongue is a small member, and yet it boasts a great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness, James says. And he continues on saying, the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. The tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Now third, David's uh, take stock of his enemy's methods, which rely on secret and sudden assaults against the weary. In verse 4 of Psalm 64, he says, Shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly without fear. David is not faced with honest, forthright opposition. And it often does us good to hear thoughtful, well-meaning criticism. And we should seek to receive constructive feedback without becoming defensive. In fact, it's even bearable to receive straightforward attacks. And yet, during David's flight from Jerusalem, a man named Shimei cursed David and threw stones, calling him a man of blood and a worthless man in 2 Samuel 16.7. David presented his soldiers from striking back and bore the cursing with patience. And it was, however, the shots of slander and accusation fired from uh, a secret into his back that damaged David. It was a secret ambush of Absalom that brought the king to the brink of disaster. David's key word is suddenly. The ideal form of attack against the innocent is a sudden ambush, precisely because such victims are usually unwary of opposition. Finally, David chronicles the thoughts of his opponents when he says this in verses 5 through 6. They hold fast to the evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, who can see them? They search out injustice, saying, we have accomplished a diligent search, for the inward mind and heart of man are deep. The two key ideas here are the gloating of the wicked when certain of the success of their conspiracy and the mental effort they exert in their wicked plans. David's opponents were certain that no one would ever learn of their evil plotting, and they delighted in the creative depth of their searching after the right combination of wicked strategies. James Boyce explains that, that David's meaning, saying that his enemies are almost bottomless in their supply of evil deeds and cunning. David's final comments expose the true nature of sin. Now, most people think of sin merely as something wrong to do or they're broken by it. And yet sin is seen not merely in the outward actions of our hands, but primarily in our inward thoughts and motives. And realizing this, we need to understand that David's accusations convict not merely his enemies, but also us. How much more effort our minds exert in finding the most biting retort that will cut our neighbor down. 
How often have we let slip just the right criticism as a cunning snare to present our rival in the poor light? And perhaps worst of all, consider how naturally our minds search out just the right posture, the perfect tone of voice, and the ideal choice of words to cause others to glorify us, even when we're supposedly worshiping God, bearing testimony to his gospel. In these and other ways, it is our thought life that the evil grip of sin is seen most clearly by God. Surely it was no overstatement when Jeremiah uh, lamented in Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And seeing how David exposes our own sin, how necessary is it for us to work deeply for the sanctification of our minds and our hearts? Now, opposed by such a sudden and a deadly assault, David realized they had no hope apart from the intervention of the Lord. This is why he appealed to the Lord in Psalm 64 verse 1, which says, Hear my voice, O God, and my complaint. Preserve my life from the dread of the enemy. Now, we should not think of David as complaining in the sense of whining before God. Instead, the idea is that of a legal appeal. David files a complaint in the court of heaven, seeking redress from those who are doing him harm. His action is in keeping with the New Testament teaching against personal retaliation. Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. And when one's reputation has been smeared and one's position has been compromised, one can often do nothing to recover what's been lost except to ask the Lord to intervene from heaven. And here, David follows his own advice from Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. And while we can often do little to protect ourselves from the kind of cunning and even the sudden assault that David describes here, this does not mean that there's nothing that God can't do. In Psalm 64, 7, David celebrates God's ability to strike more effectively in defending his people than his enemies can strike in attacking them, loosing arrows more suddenly than the shafts that flew from those who plotted so carefully. In verse 7, he says, but, but God shoots his arrow at them. They are wounded suddenly, David writes. Now, David's anticipating that God will turn the tables on the enemy. Joseph A. Alexander writes, Just as they are about to shoot an arrow suddenly at the righteous, God shoots an arrow suddenly at them. The wounds which they intend to inflict on others have become their own. A nearly literal fulfillment of this boast is recorded in the death of Ahab, the wicked ruler of the northern kingdom of Israel over a century after David. Ahab was a kind of person who perfectly fit the description of David's foes. He was a, a, a deep conniver and a clever searcher after wicked plans. One of Ahab's most evil deeds, orchestrated by his cunning wife Jezebel, was a false accusation and a judicial murder of righteous Naboeth in order to steal his vineyard. And in reply, God sent the prophet Elijah to foretell Ahab's judgment in 1 Kings 21.19, which says, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Nahab, and shall dogs lick your own blood. This judgment was fulfilled after a battle against the Syrians. Ahab had dis disguised himself so as to avoid the attention of the enemy's archers. And nonetheless, one archer drew his bow at random, and the shaft sped through the air at God's direction and struck the unseen bullseye on Ahab's chest in 1 Kings 22:34. And fleeing the battle, Ahab died on his way to his palace, and the dogs licked up blood in the field that had previously belonged to Noabeth, as uh, 1 Kings uh, 21:38 tells us. 
And so if the judgment of Ahab literally fulfills Psalm 64's description of God's sudden and deadly arrow, virtually every other deliverance of God's people recorded in the Bible fits uh, the picture in a general way. Pharaoh had Moses and the Israelites backed up against the Red Sea. But God suddenly opened the waters to allow his people to pass and then collapsed the waves to drown the mighty host of Egypt. The Assyrian conqueror Sennacherib besieged Jerusalem with an overwhelming force. But in answer to King Hezekiah's prayer, God suddenly sent forth the angel of the Lord with a plague of death that destroyed Sennacherib's army. Haman the Amalekite fit David's description of a cunning plotter in his attempt to wipe out the Jews in exile in Babylon. But God suddenly employed the Persian king's beautiful Jewish wife Esther to turn the tables, so that Haman's body hung from the very gallows that he had erected to murder Esther's uncle Mordecai. And in this way, Psalm 64 describes the general model for the redemption of God's people, his sudden appearing with power to save. And these past examples of God's sudden intervention, they warn us of the coming judgment promised in Scripture. You see, in the end of history, the return of Christ is described as sudden and unforeseen, so dismay the enemies of his people. Paul writes that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there is peace and security, and then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant wife, according to 1 Thessalonians 5, 2-3. And knowing that God often intervenes suddenly at what appears the last minute, Christians should look for his coming in time of need and should pray with an eye open, expecting God's sudden and unheralded salvation. Now, while rebels against God should fear the coming of the Lord, to his trusting people, the return of Christ is the blessed hope Titus 2.13 speaks of that will complete our deliverance. And so, as we consider the flying of God's sudden arrow to strike down those who fired at David, we can note at least three important lessons by way of application that we can take home today. And the first lesson is the folly of thinking that God doesn't know what we think or plan in secret. He knows. In fact, we can say that this foolish belief that one may hide from God was a distinguishing characteristic of David's enemies. He declares in Psalm 64, 5, they hold fast to their evil purposes. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, who could see them? The great heir of all who conspire in evil is failing to realize the simple truth set forth in Hebrews 4.13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to, him, to whom we must give an account. No cloak can thwart the all-seeing eye of God. No locked door can keep his omnipresent spirit outside. No layer of deception can keep the Lord from knowing exactly what is brewing in the cauldrons of our minds. God sees, he knows, and he has his bow, bent bow to bow. Let me, start, let me say this again. God sees, he knows, and he has his bent bow to, spend, to speed the shaft of judgment against our sins. Now, there may be no better example of God's omniscience in judging evil than the greatest sin of David's life, his adultery with Bathsheba, together with an even more wicked cover-up. Like the man he denounces in Psalm 64, David possessed enormous power to manipulate deadly outcomes for others. His problem was that his seduction of Bathsheba resulted in the conception of a child, a scandalous situation given that her husband Uriah was away serving in David's army. 
Uh, by the end of 2 Samuel 11, David's cunning had tied up uh, David's cunning had tied up all the embarrassing loose ends, culminating with the enemy's archers that David had arranged to slay Uriah with an arrow. And so with Bathsheba now eligible to marry, the account of David's plot concludes with her becoming his wife and giving birth to their son. And so we can imagine David wiping his brow, his wicked scheme having succeeded in involving, avoiding discovery. Well, unfortunately for David, however, the last word of that chapter belongs to him, but to the Lord. 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven says, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David forgot the bent bow of the all-seeing God, whose justice brings every sin to account. You see, some people think, it doesn't matter at the end of my life what I do with my life. Life is all about me. It's about mine. This is especially relevant at, at, at this time that we are living in in our day because we have what's called relativism. It's uh, do whatever I want. It's feel whatever I want to feel. It's seek my highest good. Well, this is also hedonism. The one feeds into the other. Uh, my truth, it's my truth that matters. It, so it's my thoughts. It's, it's my life. I'll do whatever I want. And don't you dare tell me what to do with the life that is mine. I'm going to seek mine. I'm going to seek my truth. I'm going to speak my truth. And I'm going to seek my pleasure. That is the cultural moment of our day. And yet the truth is, God sees the condition of man's heart. If when men and women rebel against God, yes, they will seek their truth outside of God, outside of his word. They will seek their pleasure outside of God, outside of his word. That is defines and describes the cultural moment in which we are living in to a T. And yet what we see here in this psalm is, and what we know from the rest of scripture is that God sees and God knows. And not only does he know, but he knows the hairs on our head. He knows how many hairs are on our head. He knows the motivation of my heart. He sees the intentions of the heart. And that remember that this is the God who made us. He's the very one who could say, you don't exist anymore. And yet in his mercy, in his grace, the, the very one who causes our breath, us to be able to breathe. The one, the very one who enables our cells and our brains to work and our mouths to work so that words can come out of our mouths is also the one who down to our very DNA causes our bodies to function together. How we quickly forget that this is the Lord. And he knows and he sees. He sees what's done in secret at your job, in your home, uh, behind closed doors. He sees it all. He knows it all. And he's going to hold every single person to account. Now, a second lesson from this psalm is that God often strikes in judgment by employing the sinner's own weapons against themselves. If the evil plotters of Psalm 64 fired their shafts suddenly, God would prove the quicker draw in sending an arrow of his own back to, for their doom. In the case of David's adultery and murder with Bathsheba, God's arrow brought death to their child and a plague of sexual sin and murder strife within David's own house. 
Likewise, those who develop the craft of slander and cultivate the habit of deception are often undone by their resulting inability to act with integrity and to cultivate trust. John Calvin asserts the poison concocted in their secret councils and which they revealed with their tongues would prove they have a deadly effect upon themselves. And not only does God cause slanderers to lose their own reputations, but he delights to take weaponry of the tongue and to make it serve for the peace of his kingdom. James Boyce notes that although the most effective weapon of the wicked may be words, words are also the chief weapon of the Holy Spirit. The words of the righteous are effective, especially when they're uttered in a spirit-blessed prayer. And James 5.16 tells us, and Boyce continues saying the word of God are even more effective. You see, God said through Isaiah in Isaiah 55.11 that his word shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the very thing for which I set. And with this truth in mind, we can know that our words are most effective in serving God when they are shaped by and even bear testimony to the mighty word of God. This is why our words matter. See, God sees them. He knows them. In Luke 6.45 and throughout the Gospels, you'll see this phrase, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And then you'll see all, all these things come out of the heart. All these sins come out of our heart. Because in, in, the, in the mind of Jesus and in the mind of, of the, in the Old Testament, the heart was a seed of knowledge. An understanding. So if you wanted to have knowledge and wanted to have understanding, it wasn't about filling your mind. It was knowing those truths in in, in your heart. This is why the Bible and Proverbs, especially, you see this idea of getting wisdom and understanding. And this is what it is meaning is have understanding. Don't just fill your head with more information. Experience it at the heart level. Know it truly. And, and that is what... That is what we can say about when we're being grounded in and shaped by the word of God. What God is doing is he's reshaping our hearts more and more and, and, our, and thus our lives uh, as he reshapes us from the inside out. And then our behavior will be more like Christ because we are being grounded and shaped in and the Holy Spirit is using the preached word and the word that we read and study and meditate on and he's using it to transform us, to make us more like Christ. And that's why our words matter. It matters because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we will give an account that scripture tells us for every idle word out of our mouth. That's what also is so wrong about meditating on and dwelling on and why the Bible has so much to say about slander and gossip and all these other things because those things come out of our hearts, especially when we're intentional about it and we can continue to think of this is the way in which I'm going to do this and this is the way I'm going to do that. Uh, and we have to be careful about that because you know what? Uh, oftentimes those kind of things are sinful especially when we're plotting harm and evil and things. And, and instead, what the scripture says is in Colossians 3, for example, that we're to put off the old man and put on the new man. And that has happened at the moment of our conversion. We are united to Christ by faith in his name. We are indwelt in by his spirit. And we are empowered to live out the mission uh, which God has given us to seeking to save the lost. First Thessalonians 4, 3 tells us, do you want to know what God's will is? One of his things, one of God's wills through the work of the word 
And what the Spirit is trying to produce in you is He's trying to sanctify you. He's trying to make you more like Christ. And, and not to mention all the many times in which uh, the, the epistles talk about how we're to speak, like Ephesians 4.15, we're supposed to speak the truth in love. In Colossians uh, 4, we're to speak words seasoned with salt. And on and on and on we could go with this. This is why we can know that our words are most effective in serving God when they're shaped by and bear testimony to the mighty word of God. And the third point by way of application for us is to note that flows from the previous two points that I mentioned. First, God sees all things, so no human scheme can possibly escape his surveillance. Second, God is able to take even our own weapons and bend them back against us or seize them to serve the purpose of his gospel. The conclusion, therefore, follows that God is perfectly able to judge all sin just as he is perfectly able to preserve and protect all the people to belong to him through faith in his name. And since this conclusion calls for a respectful response, David says in Psalm 64, 9, that all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. And so when a notorious sinner falls, people wag their tongue and say, he was bound to get what he deserved. But even more important is it for us to realize that the same is true of every sinner. We are all bound, certainly bound by God to receive everything that our sins have deserved. This being true, the great folly of life is to think in the manner expressed by David's scheming enemies. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, who can see them in Psalm 64, 5. This is the gross folly by which countless people race blindly to destruction and the judgment of God. They rush headlong into the mad delusion that God cannot see them, that God does not read their thoughts of their minds or understand the motive of their heart. And to the contrary, in the final judgment, God promises to open all the books so that everyone will be judged by what is written in the books according to what they have done, Revelation 20.12 tells us. Jesus says this in Luke 8.17, Nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Even the thoughts and intentions of our hearts are not hidden from the Lord our God. And with this teaching in mind, we conclude our study of Psalm 64 by noting two points of wisdom, one which is obvious and the other which is not as obvious. The obvious point of wisdom is to realize that God sees all of your sin, that you possess no weapons that God cannot use against you, and that God possesses all power he needs to judge and punish you as you deserve. And so what that means is, therefore, you must urgently find some way to escape the judgment of God. And the final, the more subtle point of wisdom answers this question. What can we do about the problem of God's knowledge of our sin and his perfect ability to judge us? How can a, be sinner, how can a sinner be saved from God? And David provides the answer in the final verse of Psalm 64, saying that the sinner escapes from God by taking refuge in God. Psalm 64.10 says that the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. We know from elsewhere that David rejoices not only in God's refuge against the darts of his enemies, but also in the refuge that God provides against his sin. In Psalm 32, David rejoices in verses 1 through 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. 
God has provided the refuge that sinners need from his own wrath, sending his son, Jesus, to pay the penalty in his own death for the sins of those who trust in him. David relied on such mercy when he said in Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. In words similar to Psalm 64, David celebrates the refuge not only from other sins, but more importantly, his own. In Psalm 32, 7, you are my hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And so the necessity of God's mercy, it points out that the wrong answer to the problem of our sins being known and judged by God is to attempt some moral reformation of our own. This is a natural response of man. We say, if I realize that God is watching me, then I will do everything I can to clean up my conduct and to win his approval. The problem, of course, is that God is not fooled by our falsely righteous behavior. The problem of our sin is that we are ourselves sinner by nature, and God cannot be kept from seeing the truth of our hearts any more than we can keep from sinning in his sight. And therefore, if you realize that God looks right through you, that he knows everything, and if you see that God's bow of judgment is bent, an arrow fitted for you, targeted at you in your direction, what you must do is run to God for the mercy that he offers to you through his son, Jesus Christ. Do not respond to the all-knowing eye of God by attempting petty good works that will fail to deceive the judgment of heaven. Respond by coming to the cross of Christ, confessing the truth of your sin that God already knows and taking refuge in the forgiveness he offers by the mercy of his gospel. David concludes saying in Psalm 64:10, "Let all the upright in heart exult." The author of Psalm 51 with its humble confession for sin against Bathsheba and Uriah knows better than to claim himself upright by his own deeds. Rather, he exalts in the righteousness he received through faith in the gospel, which in his day pointed forward to the coming of Christ. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And in that same grace, David found a refuge great enough for everyone who needs forgiveness for his or her sins. That's because through faith in Christ, the sinner may be declared upright before God, justified in the righteousness of Christ. Declared just before God through faith, David no longer fears the slander of the world and its evil scheming, but exults in the gospel grace of God. Paul says this in Romans 8, 33-34, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. If you believe this gospel and are saved, then you may know that God bent his bow and fired his arrow of saving mercy, not flaming judgment into your heart. God has granted you by grace the very opposite of what you deserve at the expense of his own son, bringing you eternal life through faith alone in his name. And if you rejoice in that gospel of free justification, then you will not only exult in God's mercy, but also ask him to grant you power through the Holy Spirit. And then by grace, you may live before him in uprightness of heart, being liberated more and more from the evil scheming and the bitter words of your sinful nature and becoming yourself a bow, a bow armed with arrows of grace so that others like you may be saved in the gospel refuge of Christ alone. Today, you might even be experiencing that arrow coming at you. You see, the only way to escape the, the righteous judgment of God 
is to flee to the only refuge that men can and women have, and that is Jesus Christ. The only way to be saved is not through the latest philosophy, the latest idea, the latest uh, this and that. It's only through the righteousness of Christ alone that anybody can be saved. And Christ saves. He saves. He alone is enough for you. And dear Christian, this is why at the beginning I prayed, he sees you, he knows you, he cares for you, not because of you, but because of Christ. And by the way, Hebrews 4, 4 15 and 16 tells us that, that this is why he is a very present help in time of need for us. And you may be experiencing a great deal of difficulty and challenges. Flee to the righteousness of Christ alone. He alone is your help. He alone is your refuge. He is the only one who can ultimately help you through every season of life. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the righteousness of Christ. We thank you that you alone save sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, through the faithful preaching of the word of God alone. That faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, as you say in Romans 10, 17. Lord, we also pray for those who are experiencing a great deal of, of, of trouble, even a great deal of challenges and hard circumstances. We thank you, Lord, that you see us and you know us. And because of Christ, you care for your own. So, Lord, may we call upon you. May we cast our burdens at the feet of the one who 1 Peter 5, 7 says cares for us. So we thank you, Lord, that your word is enough and that your son is enough and that the salvation you offer to us through Christ is enough that you meet every need and every burden and every hurt and every pain because you took them all upon the cross where you suffered and bled and died in our place and for our sin. We thank you, Lord, that you are enough and that not only are you enough, but you always will be enough. You are enough to meet our greatest need and every need. Lord, we thank you and we worship you even now. And we look forward to the day where we will stand face to face before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, worshiping you for all eternity, without end, singing praises to our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.